Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm your host, Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 294. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living Inside Science series, our guest today is Shelley McKellar. Shelley McKellar earned a PhD in history from the University of Toronto and worked as a Smithsonian scholar at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. Shelley McKellar is the Hannah Endowed Chair of Medical History, and she is appointed as a joint tenured associate professor in the Department of History and the Department of Surgery at Western University Schulitz School of Medicine and Dentistry in Ontario, Canada. Today on the Not Old Better Show Inside Science series, we'll be talking with Shelley McKellar about artificial hearts, which have a controversial medical history after sensational patient cases from Barney Clark to Vice President Dick Cheney that will be very familiar to our Not Old Better Show audience. When I talk about the artificial heart, most people remember the Jarvik 7 heart and that it was implanted in 1982 in Barney Clark in Salt Lake City, Utah. Barney Clark was the first recipient of a permanently implanted total artificial heart, and Barney Clark lived 112 days with this heart, 1982 to 83. And what's so exciting about this implant was that Barney Clark actually woke up with an artificial heart in his chest. His disease human heart had been removed. The Jarvik 7 total artificial heart was now in his chest. Barney Clark woke up with this mechanical device in his chest and was able to tell people what it felt like to have an artificial heart in his chest. Unfortunately, Barney Clark never left hospital, but his innovators, Robert Jarvik, William Kolf, William Dries, who implanted the device, Don Olson, who was part of the artificial heart team, were very pleased with the success of this device and actually giving Barney Clark 112 extra days with his family. William DeVries would go on to implant three more Jarvik 7 total artificial hearts permanently in patients. William Schrader would live a remarkable 620 days with his Jarvik heart and he actually left hospital, actually lived in an apartment that was accommodating uh, with medical support for him outside of the hospital and probably unknown to many people is that the nature of this device was that it worked well enough to bridge a lot of transplant eligible patients to a transplant operation. So more than 200 additional implants of this device took place in the United States and worldwide through the rest of the 1980s to successfully bridge people to transplant. In 1990, the FDA actually removed their approval for this device, citing record keeping and the Jarvik heart was not implanted after 1990. That, of course, is our guest today, Shelley McKellar, author of the new book, Artificial Hearts, The Allure and Ambivalence of a Controversial Medical Technology. And Shelley McKellar will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates Inside Science Series Thursday, December 13, 2018 at the Ripley Center in Washington, D.C. Please join me in welcoming via internet phone to the Not Old Better Show, Shelley McKellar. Professor Shelley McKellar, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I just think this this subject, uh, and we're going to talk about the artificial heart. This is really an interesting one. I, I get I get a little excited about these inside science series from the Smithsonian Associates, but I, I wonder if you'd tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation that'll be about the artificial heart. Well, at this talk, I want to share with people the controversial history of artificial hearts and to take a look at why we want this technology to work. Is this technology a cure for heart failure? 
when I was at the Smithsonian and wandering around the stacks looking for a research topic, I was dumbstruck by these objects. This is exciting objects um, when you run across them. I became very seduced by them myself, that here I was looking at an artificial heart that was actually implanted in a patient to keep them alive, and they actually worked, or at least for part of the time. And I wanted to unpack those a bit more, and I think that through this presentation, we can kind of tease apart our current concerns about heart disease and the role that medical technology may or may not play and look at its historical trajectory to find out how we got to where we are today. You know, our audience certainly will remember um, names like DeBakey and Jarvik, even even Barney Clark as, as uh, some of the first artificial heart device and implant cases. The public profile of artificial hearts is, is big media. It, it's almost sensational at times. And you write that historically there are certain individuals that have played a role in affecting kind of some of the sensationalism and, and the perception that the public has. Who were they and, and how did they change our view of artificial hearts? Well, I think that's quite correct that the media really does play this key role in shaping the public profile of this technology throughout its history. And there's these key individuals that really use the media as a platform to kind of both educate the public about heart disease, but also to introduce this idea that there might be a medical technology out there to deal with the problem of heart failure. And I would argue that there's three main periods in which the media really captures this kind of excitement and engagement with individual innovators. So the 1960s and the 1980s and the early 2000s are those three key periods. And the 1960s was when Michael DeBakey really uh, grabbed the spotlight to tell people about this new medical technology. 1960s, Dr. Michael DeBakey is a top authority in the field of heart disease. He is the leading cardiovascular surgeon in Houston, working at Methodist Hospital, uh, has a robust research program at Baylor College of Medicine, is the surgeon that the celebrities would go to, uh, Marlene Dietrich, uh, the Shah of Iran, the Duke of Windsor, if they have a cardiovascular problem, it's Dr. DeBakey that's going to operate on them. And Dr. DeBakey was quite savvy. He was quite savvy. He knew he was a very good cardiovascular surgeon, but he's very savvy in working with the media and working with politicians in Washington to help gain profile for his activities and to amass resources for it. Let me give you an example. So in the 1960s, Dr. DeBakey is working on his artificial heart technology program, and he decides in 1963, after implanting more than 50 animals with his mechanical device, that he's going to try it in patients. And in addition to trying it on patients from 1963 to 1966, he invites Life magazine into his operating room to actually capture the surgery in live time, but also in pictures and, and to have it for his magazine. And despite his confidence in this medical technology working, it did not work. In fact, his patients died. He had to go back to the lab to actually examine the device, which was full of blood clots, uh, fibrinous materials. And he had to rethink this ability to actually use these medical devices for his patient cases. Life magazine reporters, however, had captured all of this. And he was quite savvy in recognizing that this is important information to get out to the public. And he uses this as a success story to say that with more research, more resources, we in fact could in fact develop this technology. He in fact does use this device again in 1966 in Esperanza del Valle Vasquez, who actually is supported for 10 days with external artificial heart pump uh, 
to allow her own heart to recover. The pump is removed. It's only a temporary device, and she makes a full recovery. And I think because Michael DeMicke had used Life magazine to demonstrate the cutting edge technology he was working on and then eventually report on the success of the case, he educates people on how development of such devices is an incremental and iterative process back and forth trying with patients in the lab, and then the success will be forthcoming. In your highly regarded uh, book, Artificial Hearts, The Allure and Ambivalence of a Controversial Medical Technology, which will be available for sale and signing at the Smithsonian Associates presentation, you write that the artificial heart um, at its beginning was imperfect technology, and you referred to this just a moment ago as, as being even controversial. Leaps and bounds, technology has improved greatly since some of those days. How has the technology improved around the artificial heart? I very much argue that's an imperfect technology because the nature of this technology is that it will both work to educate the physicians who are actually implanting these devices in these very sick patients. So the allure and ambivalence component comes. The allure is that there is a technological fix to the problem of heart failure. We all want it to work. We want this treatment to be successful. The ambivalence comes from the poor patient outcomes that comes from the realization that this technology is imperfect. So as I mentioned, incremental and iterative process, they're grappling with the ability to replace the human heart with a mechanical device. It raises all kinds of difficult questions. What are the right biomaterials that will be compatible with the blood? What's going to be the right power source to actually activate this device? Would this be an issue that the device would be able to respond to the person as they needed to, whether they were sitting in a chair or walking upstairs or sleeping? This is a a very difficult task. And from the outset, the ability for researchers and clinicians to be able to be successful, and it's framed as a project that has technological challenges that with time and resources, money, uh, the right people working on the project, that these technological challenges will be overcome. These obstacles will be removed. Then I think what happens in terms of understanding this technology is imperfect is that bioethicists, other medical professionals, even some politicians start questioning the poor patient outcomes by saying this is more than just a technological problem, that there's other issues at bay, whether they have to be the quality of life, whether there has to be uh, informed consent. There's a genuine concern that this is an, an area of technology that perhaps has run amok, that there's the hope that it might work, but there's a fear that the patients may be worse off. So I think the imperfect nature of it creates an uncertainty that's unsettling and troublesome for a lot of people that see patients willing to be implanted with these investigational devices, but not be returned to a near normal lifestyle they had hoped for. And I think what most people fail to remember is that these early patients who received this technology were very sick people. They had multiple things wrong with them. They would never be able to return to a, a lifestyle they had enjoyed five, 10 years ago because of the compromised nature of their bodies. And I think society starts to question this in the 1980s when they had the very high profile permanent implant cases of Barney Clark, William Schrader, Jack Bertram, and Murray Hayden who had less than successful outcomes that we're never able to return home to this near normal lifestyle, even though that had been the hope or the promise. And to add to that, a very 
sensational op-ed piece was published in 1988 in the New York Times, which labeled the artificial heart as the Dracula of medical technology, a moniker that keeps re-emerging as new developments uh, are presented to the public. And again, it speaks, I guess, to this concern that perhaps even if we can rebuild uh, the heart with a mechanical device, is this a avenue that we should be pursuing? Are public monies best spent on these treatment, high technology devices, which only a small percentage of the population will be able to benefit from? Or is these, mon- these monies better spent on prevention strategies? We are with Professor Shelley McKellar, who will be at the Smithsonian Associates Program. Dr. McKellar is the author of the book, Artificial Hearts, The Allure and Ambivalence of a Controversial Medical Technology. Uh, Professor McKellar, it, it, you refer to this and, and allude to this certainly, but it, but it seems at this point in time that um, technologically maybe we, we're viewing our bodies as, as kind of replaceable parts. And, and do these devices, we'll talk about the heart specifically, um, do, they, do they offer cures to heart disease? Should we look at them that way? Are there limitations to the medical community's view of these devices? I think by my arguing that this is imperfect technology, I want people to acknowledge that there are certain risks and limitations to these devices, but they have actually delivered an improved quality of life for many patients who've actually seen the need for them. And one of the most high-profile, well-known artificial heart patients is arguably former vice president Dick Cheney, who in fact attributes his 20-month implantation with an artificial heart device as the key time in which this device actually saved his life. I think few people realize that uh, when he was rushed into hospital, he was near death. And that in the year 2010, when he was implanted with a HeartMate 2 ventricular cyst device, that he was a very sick man, probably within days of dying, and this device actually worked well enough to improve his health to the point that he could be bridged to transplantation, that 20 months later he actually received a heart transplantation. I think what also many people didn't realize that he was a very sick man, he spent 35 days in hospital after the implant of this HeartMate 2 pump, ventricular cyst device, and that he had resources to actually work with physiotherapists and others to actually transition to life living with a ventricular assist device. People may remember he was uh, on television a lot in the year 2011. He was out uh, commenting on pol- uh, political events, but he was also talking about his memoir, In My Time, that he had just published. And he can was sitting with Wolf Blitzer and with other media personalities, and he would explain, he was quite happy to explain this ventricular cyst device that was implanted, waving the battery around, demonstrating to them that he had returned to a near-normal lifestyle, that he was feeling strong. And when he'd been implanted with this device at age 69, he said that he was unsure whether he would go forth with a heart transplant. We know that 20 months later, he did go forth with a heart transplant operation, which has worked successful for him. And I think what the confusion over his experience has been is about this term artificial hearts. So I argue in my book that total artificial hearts, which are devices that completely replace the diseased human heart, which is removed from the patient's bodies, this category, this mechanical circuitry support technology category, also includes partial artificial hearts or ventricular cyst devices. 
So these pumps, like what former Vice President Dick Cheney had, these ventricular cyst devices are assisting the diseased human heart, which remains in the patient's body. And these ventricular cyst devices, or partial artificial hearts, is what I call the less glamorous sibling of artificial hearts, has really been the device that has enjoyed the commercial and clinical success that I think many people had hoped for back in the 1960s, that these devices can be used for both temporary and permanent use. They can be used for both acute and chronic cases of heart failure, short-term, allowing your heart to recover, but also for longer-term, chronic cases for individuals suffering from heart failure who may not be transplant eligible. Heart transplantation is still the gold standard treatment for individuals in end-stage heart failure. But as we know, hearts are limited in the number of donor hearts are available to people who actually need them. When you start researching the statistics of people living with heart failure worldwide and in the U.S., the numbers are quite staggering. It's almost 6 million Americans are living with symptomatic heart failure in the U.S. today, uh, something like 26 million worldwide. And people have suggested that uh, this condition could emerge as this global health and financial burden. And what's ironic about all this is that the rising incidence of heart failure, which had supported the initiative to develop end-stage heart disease technology. There was a compelling need for it. It seemed legitimate that these individuals could actually build this technology. But we actually got better at treating heart disease. The risk of a coronary, dying of coronary artery disease is lower now. We've gotten better at, with our cardiac drugs. But what this means is that more people are living longer with damaged hearts. So we have a greater population that actually will suffer from end-stage heart failure. Well, historically, Professor McKellar, I have a question for you about kind of the some of the, the very first instances of uh, of artificial heart implant, and there there are two names that come to mind: Dr. Cooley, and then of course Dr. Michael DeBakey, who we refer to. Those two are a bit at odds over really kind of what took place and how and when. Is that how you'd frame it? Well, that's a very interesting story, in that even though Dr. <laughs> Michael DeBakey was the surgeon that was associated with the development of the artificial heart, the surgeon who actually implanted the first total artificial heart was not Dr. Michael DeBakey, but it was his junior colleague, Dr. Denton Cooley. So Dr. Denton Cooley in 1969 implanted the Leota Cooley total artificial heart in Haskell Carp down at St. Luke's Hospital. And it created a Incredible sensational media attention for two reasons. One, because it was the first implant and it actually was deemed a success because it kept Mr. Carp alive for 64 hours until he was bridged to a transplant, uh, which was found from a, a donor. But it was also gained sensational attention because Dr. Michael DeBakey uh, argued that this device that was implanted in Mr. Carp was covertly taken from his lab down the street <laughs> and implanted in Mr. Carp without his permission or even knowledge. And because oh, wow. this debate creates this sensational attention, the Life magazine actually ran a cover story in 1970, which talks about this famous feud between these two surgeons. 
because Dr. DeBakey actually brought up charges against Dr. Cooley because he had not actually received IRB approval. He had I told no one about this operation. It went under great secrecy. And Dr. DeBakey, who had used this exact device in animals uh, less than three months earlier, had declared this device unsafe to go forward into clinical trials. Dr. Cooley had actually taken it, unbeknownst to him, from his lab, walked it down to St. Luke's Hospital and implanted in Dr. Karp. Dr. DeBakey refused to even be in the same room as Dr. Cooley. It was a professional rift for 38 years before the two men actually spoke with each other again. Wow. <laughs> that is a great story. Professor Shelley McKellar will be at the Smithsonian Associates program coming up here soon. We really appreciate your time. Just one final question for you, Professor McKellar. Uh, you used the term earlier, the bioethicists reference, and, and, and I'm curious, if we think about some of this philosophically, what are some of the expectations that, that we should have about some of these devices going forward? Well, the ideal hope of some of kind of the initial inventors of technology was this, this would be a forgettable technology. So think about all the cardiac devices that we have in our arsenal now. We have pacemakers, we have stents, devices, artificial valves that are basically forgettable once you implant it and correct the problem in the patient. And the hope was that these artificial heart devices would be a forgettable technology. Bioethicists have argued that the nature of this technology is so complex. There's this tethering to some kind of power source. There's this uh, end-stage heart disease problem, that people have comorbidities with them, that this technology will never be forgettable, that it's very expensive, and that many patients will not have access to this technology, that you'd have to actually go to one of these uh, very elite specialized heart centers to actually have as this treatment. But I think what history has shown us is that, especially with ventricular assist devices, is that this clinical achievement and the success for bridging patients to transplant or even extending some patients' lives for six months, one year, two years, even up to five years, in the end, this has granted a lot of end-stage heart failure patients extra time with their partners to see grandchildren, to attend weddings. And I think this is, this is tough to argue with. So I'd like to see people reframe that question that perhaps artificial hearts are not a cure for heart failure, but see it as a life-sustaining device that may work well for some patients depending on their particular case. And I think what history has shown us is that Americans in particular have deemed these artificial hearts are worth developing, they're worth living with, and they're worth paying for. Professor Shelley McKellar, Thank you so much for your time. This is a fascinating subject. I think all of this medical history is one that our audience is really going to uh, be interested in. But we appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. We look forward to hearing from you at the Smithsonian Associates presentation. Thank you. Remember, Shelley McKellar, author of the new book, Artificial Hearts, the Allure and Ambivalence of a Controversial Medical Technology, will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program for a special Inside Science Series presentation, December 13th, 2018 at the Ripley Center in Washington, D.C. Shelley McKellar's new book, Artificial Hearts, The Allure and Ambivalence of a Controversial Medical Technology will be available for purchase and signing following the presentation. Thanks to Shelley McKellar for joining me today. And thanks to the wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show, The Not Old Better Show. 
talk about better. Thanks, everybody.